Welcome to episode 180 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson. And I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Sarah Jackson. This is our last best of 2016 episode. Our which best means, last effort. Which means, which means. Last best effort. Right now it's 2017. Although we are recording this in 2016. Mm. Time travel. Things have happened. It's magic. It's actually Christmas Eve uh, 2016. 2016, as we record this. Uh, we're about to take some time off for the holidays and so we recorded three best of 2016 episodes last year we did four last this year, year we're only doing three only three uh featuring some of our favorite clips from the 80 90 80 plus 88 88 episodes that we recorded in 2016 it's the same as the miles per hour in back to the future that's all you need to know holy whoa no. This was the year I watched all the Back to the Futures. Yeah, you didn't watch any. So of them now previously. he gets it. So now That's you crazy. get it. Now he gets it. Thank you so much to everyone who's been listening to the show, whether you've been listening for two years, uh, which is how long we've been doing the show now, uh, or if this is your first episode, uh, hopefully you've gotten something out of it. Thank you so much for supporting the show, listening, tweeting, following us, rating us on iTunes. We really appreciate it. Thank you to all the people who were on the show in the last two years as well. Every guest we've had has been amazing. Uh, it's unfortunate we can only choose, you know, a few clips for these best ofs, uh, but every episode has been awesome. And if you've missed any, you can find those on our website at spec.fm. Brian says they're awesome. That's his Yelp review of our podcast. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. His own podcast. <laughs> P <Just> good, five <laughs> stars. Pretty good, three stars. That Bryn guy's a <laughs> best real... Best show ever, one star. <laughs> that Bryn guy's a real jerk. Before we get into this final best of 2016 episode... We want to thank our sponsor for making it possible and making this show possible. Thank you so much to Wayno. Wayno is a full service digital agency. If you haven't heard the spiel, then you haven't heard the spiel, but basically Wayno's awesome. They're a team of some of the most talented designers doing incredible work out of San Francisco, New York, and Reykjavik. There's some people that I feel lucky to have gotten to know this year. Uh, and they're, they've been so supportive of the show, sponsoring us not because they're trying to sell you anything, not because they want a return on this. They just want you to check out their work, be inspired, read their case studies. And of course, if you need a laugh, just follow them on Twitter, which you should do. All of the links to if their... If you need a laugh, just go look at their portfolio. <laughs> it's hilarious. We have links to all of their... The work they think they can get away with. We have all their links in our, in our show notes. You should go follow them on Twitter and Instagram and Dribble. Get inspired. But more importantly, go to their website, wayno.co. They just relaunched uh, in the last couple of months a gorgeous redesign showcasing wonderful case studies from some of their past work. And of course, at the bottom of their website, they are uh, looking for people to help help them join the team. They're looking for product designers here in San Francisco, product designers in New York. And if you're a junior designer or you're looking for a break as an intern, they're looking for a 2017 design intern here in San Francisco. Just go to wayno.co. Uh, all that information's at the bottom of the page. And of course, tell them we sent you. Once again, thank you so much to Wayno. Uh, they really have made the show possible. Couldn't do it without them. Go check them out at wayno.co. So thank you so much to Wayno for sponsoring the show. And with that, let's get into one episode 180. Kicking things off with a clip from the Hood Sisters. Amy and Jen Hood, who we talked to at Epic Currents. All good oh, in I was the like hood. dying the hood. while we recorded this episode. It was a good one. Brian good remembers. One. I think he actually like left the room we were staying in because I was coughing so oh, loud. Oh yeah, Bruno almost died. Uh, yeah, mostly mostly dead. And the Hood Sisters put up with us. Uh, so then the clip that we're going to be featuring in this episode, the Hood Sisters, Jen and Amy, talk about their biggest learning in starting a new business. And that new business is Hoodspa. Um, but what it takes to also create healthy relationships with clients. 
So they seem to have a pretty healthy relationship. Yeah, so. yeah. It was pretty yeah. fascinating stuff. I thought it was particularly cool because... The Hood Sisters are cool. The Hood they Sisters are, are super cool. cool. They work with some awesome people, including uh, one of Bryn's favorite companies, Deus. Yeah. And they also make dope pins. And they make dope pins. Dude, I had no idea Amy made one of my favorite paintings, and that was super cool to discover. Like, yeah. I, I know this person now. Yeah. It's the best. And they have a dope-ass Mercedes. <laughs> yeah. So. Yep. <laughs> and it's a very old car. It's great. It's so cool. Uh, okay. Let's kick this off. Episode 104, All Good in the Hood, mm. featuring Jen and Amy Hood. The name puns. <laughs> Yeah. What's uh what's the biggest mistake you guys have made starting a business? A design business. Um I think we were way too like we didn't take charge. We didn't take um we didn't lead clients. We let them At the lead beginning. us. So What do you mean? We would be like, "Oh, well, we'll, we'll work with you whatever you can." Sometimes we'd we would say this, uh whatever you can afford, we really want to work with you. Like, we'll make it work. And um or like if they would come back to us and want a X, Y, and Z. We we were like really quick to negotiate no matter what because we're. I think we've always grown up being more like complacent and more like oh everybody just be happy and let's all get along, and and I think you just want to help people. You know, you're like I want to help you out. Like I know you need help. Yeah. You know, but there's a way to do that while still being smart in business yeah. and and while actually like training the client to be a better long term client yeah. so that the relationship is more healthy. And so we've learned a lot along the way of just like guiding the conversation, um, being more um, powerful, more of a leader in like what you're telling them, how it's going to go, how it's going to run, pushing back when they're asking for something that's not right, that's not going to work with you. Something that's not in scope. Yes, something that's not in scope. And it actually builds respect and trust in a way that you need for long-term clients. And especially with pricing, we realized, um, and I was talking to Aubrey Johnson about this earlier, and he's so good at, at closing deals. So he was really insightful. But he was like, you know, you... Uh, you have to learn to talk in a way that inspires confidence. And when you're like, oh, well, whatever you want, or like you tell me, when you sit, start saying those things, they think that they have to drive you or else it won't get done. Yeah. You need to tell them that like you're in the con- position of control. You know what you're doing. And you know if someone says yes to what you're saying, like immediately with no questions asked, like you're charging too low. If they like, you know, like blow it off immediately, you're charging way too high. But if you're able to negotiate with them and also assert a leadership role in that negotiation, you've won on your pricing and on creating a good working relationship with them. Because a lot of it is education with our client base. Like we don't work with a lot of people that are familiar with design, that are familiar with the the value of branding. So we just did at the beginning, we wouldn't educate them on how important this is and how it, you know, like building this right now creates a long lasting thing that can like really benefit you in the end. So I think just now we're, we're just really good about educating them and explaining upfront, like how it's going to be. How do you do that? Is that over emails or do you have decks that you show to people? Cause client education seems to be another very common topic of you have to tell them why this is valuable and yeah. why a logo, which is a series of shapes and colors <laughs> is worth tens, hundreds, millions of dollars. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Right. I think all so. the way up, right? How yeah. Do you, how do you do that? Uh, initially, I think the either face to face or the phone call is really imp- important. That live interaction, um, because like even Aubrey was saying, like you know, every time I first talk to someone on the phone about a, a branding project, and I say I first ask them, "What was your revenue last year?" and that's probably something that if you ask someone over email, they'd be like, I'm not going to tell you that. But right. if you put them on the spot, 
they marked it. Put, put the pressure on. Yeah. Well, I mean, in a way, they're like, oh, wow, she's like asking me, okay, uh, you know, like she obviously has a purpose with this. Like, what is she go- getting at? So Aubrey was like, okay, ask them, what was your revenue last year? Now, what do you want your revenue to be after we rebrand? If they're like, oh, well, our revenue last year was like, you know, let's say like 300 grand. And we, we think that after the rebrand, we'll be able to, we'll make it up to 350. It's like, well, then that's not worth it. Like you could literally spend your 50 grand like way better somewhere else. When you're ready to go from $300,000 to $500,000, then when I tell you my price, you'll understand why it's worth it. You know, but if you're only expecting to make like 50 grand more with your efforts, then when I tell you that the logo is going to cost 10 grand, like it's going to be really hard for you to understand why that's justified. Um, but if the person says, oh, next year we're going to like make, you know, 15% more and like we're going to grow our industry by this many ways. And then you give them the price. You're like, well, you just told me that there was this much value involved in this rebrand. And now you're able to justify the cost that you're giving them. How do you take something that abstract? Like, here's the value we're going to get out of a rebrand in monetary revenue terms. How do you get to that? Yeah. Is it a- good question. <laughs> <laughs> Just a lot of talking back and forth. Me and Amy, like after having the conversation with the client, trying to figure out the the fine line between like what they can afford and what they can justifiably understand the value of and and what, you know, actually it's worth to the brand as a whole that we perceive um, and then finding some nice middle road. Yeah. Well, and it's hard because like sometimes it is nerve wracking. I find it really nerve wracking sometimes with bigger companies who do have those big goals. It's like you're hoping to guarantee, you're, they're wanting you to guarantee this thing. And it's like, yeah, we're helping with that, but also that's on you as well. So it's like, I don't know, I get really nervous about that. But you, you just, once you start talking out, you realize, oh, we can totally do this. We know what we're doing. But I think it just can be daunting, like making that guarantee, you know, like it's nerve wracking. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, sometimes when you do talk out the price, you realize, hey, maybe this isn't really smart to even take this job on. It's just not really worth it at this point. Or maybe it's worth it, but we just don't have the time for the amount of money we'll get for it. So at that point, you either price it at a point where it would make it worth your while. And if they say yes, then that's awesome. Or, you know, you just pass on it. You just say, hey, we just can't, you know, sorry, it's not a good fit. And you refer one of your friends. (laughs) This next clip is uh, from Mike Davidson, episode 140, Murky Waters. This was an awesome conversation, uh, getting to chat with Mike shortly after he left Twitter. Uh, he's no longer with us because he also left San Francisco, which is essentially <clears throat> dead. Uh, we miss you, Mike. <laughs> to go to Seattle. Like, there's, there's a pattern here. <laughs> In this clip, Mike talks about how to evaluate the quality of decisions versus outcomes uh, as it relates to football, as well as how it relates to design. Classic Mike talking about football. Classic Mike. It was an awesome conversation. Mike is is a, a great human and someone that we really learned a lot from. I highly recommend checking out the entire episode, uh, but if you missed it, at least this clip will give you a little bit of a teaser. I'm stoked he came down from Seattle slash heaven to talk to us for a little while. That was great. And now he's gone. And, and now he's gone again. Goodbye, Mike. He visited from the other side, and now he's returned to, to whence he came. We can get into it. You wrote a post recently, and you're like, we're very apologetic about the sports metaphor, but the sports metaphor was very good. Like, it matched really well. I didn't know why you were apologetic. Ah, you're talking about uh, the post on how to evaluate the quality of decisions instead of the quality of outcomes. Yes. yes. Thank you for setting context. Brian, professional <laughs> interviewer, Brian. <laughs> so background there is um, 
I feel like in our industry, especially uh, in the, especially like as designers working at tech companies, um, you know, we're we're forced to you know evaluate each other and evaluate ourselves frequently, right? Because and it's a good, what? it's a good thing. No, we just you know? assume we're the best. We just assume we're the best because we are. Yeah, of course. Um, but you know, not everybody knows we're the best, right? Like engineers, these plebs don't appreciate our work. They really don't. <laughs> they really don't. Like engineers, execs, PMs, <laughs> like they, they they don't know what we do, you know. So um, so they want some sort of objective, and we want some sort of like objective scale, you know, for how good of work people are doing, and so. What what I've noticed in my time in in the industry is we tend to look at outcomes um, very empirically because they give us a way to say yes this designer did a fantastic job their feature led to a an, an increase uh, of twenty percent in retention like how fantastic of a job did that designer do fantastic and then we look at somebody else another designer on the team maybe and we say well you know their project didn't go so well and the thing that they designed didn't really move numbers at all they must be doing bad work and uh, rookies that yeah and that's a really like easy simplistic lazy way to evaluate people in my opinion is is just to look at the outcomes i think the better way to look at people is to look at the quality of their behavior and the quality of the, the decisions that they make and so the sports metaphor it's not that i was it wasn't mean to be apologetic about it i was just trying to express how painful it was for me to use a metaphor that involved the seahawks losing the Super Bowl <laughs> i see i see to <laughs> patriots now because it's it the most sense. one of the most painful nights of my life um but it just so happens to be a very good um, analogy to what we see in the workplace. I'll explain further. Um, <laughs> you're reading my mind. For what yes. it's worth, I did actually root for the Seahawks in that game oh, because so I knew more people on Twitter that would like the Seahawks than the Patriots. Yes. <laughs> Bryn, true sports fan. <laughs> you know, the Seahawks really, they're America's team. I mean, the Cowboys think they're America's team, but the Seahawks these days, they're America's team. So it doesn't surprise me that you love them. My dad is an obsessive Packers fan. Oh, I like the uh, Packers. So I was raised to not like the Cowboys. Oh, good. Yeah, see, you <laughs> he, he raised he's, with he's, good the only values. Team, he would pick the Vikings over the Cowboys, and the Vikings and Packers are not friendly. They are not friendly at all. But you're raised with good, wholesome values, Bryn. Um, and I, I, I already felt great about you, but now I feel even better. Yes. Um, but anyway, so back to the painful sports metaphor, like what happened at the end of that game, for anybody who watched it, you'll remember this, you know, we had the ball at the one yard line with the best running back in football, ready, you know, ready to win the game. All we had to do was just hand the ball to him and he could just walk into the end zone. Right. Um, and instead we called a pass play. And what happened was we threw a very quick pass play that was just like the simplest pass play. It's a slant pass, super, super easy. Uh, and it ended up getting intercepted by a rookie, undrafted rookie cornerback of, uh, for the Patriots named Malcolm Butler. Like the least likely thing that could possibly happen happened. And everybody immediately jumped to conclusions and they said, how could the Seahawks call a pass at, with that in that situation? The outcome was horrible. We lost the game. What a terrible call. And when the press interviewed Pete Carroll after the game, Pete Carroll's the coach of the Seahawks, when he was interviewed after the game, he kept on telling people like, hey, it wasn't the worst decision. It was just the worst outcome. And I kind of like didn't know exactly what he meant by that when he said it. But then I read this great statistical breakdown on 538.com about all the different things that had happened historically when somebody passes at the one yard line and when somebody runs at the one yard line. And it's, it's actually like there had been something like 130 passes at the one yard line that year and zero of them had resulted in interceptions. And there had been like, you know, a hundred and something runs at the one yard line and two of them had resulted in turnovers. So when you look at it that way, 
it puts a different light on that decision. And it make, as a Seahawks fan, it makes you feel like, okay, yeah, things didn't work out. And the, the outcome was not the outcome that we wanted, but the quality of the decision-making was actually, was actually not, you know, it was at the very least defensible and at the very most strong and good. And so when we getting back to, you know, the world of design, like, it's important when you run a design department or when you met, you know, when you manage um, designers, it's important to look at the quality of decisions that people are making and not necessarily just the outcomes that, that those decisions lead to, because there are so many variables that you can't control or that a designer can't control. What if they're put with, what if designer A is put with like an amazing PM and amazing engineers on an amazing project that's just destined to succeed? It's just a great idea. It was somebody else's idea, but it was just destined to succeed. That person's going to have a much easier time getting getting to a positive result than a, than an equally hardworking designer who's just as creative who did, who puts in just as much time who just happens to get stuck on a project that is a good thing to a good project to work on but contains a much like lower likelihood of success. It seems like it gets into murky waters <laughs> yes. only because you start into getting you start getting into subjective waters. Yes. Well, it's already subjective if you're measuring on outcomes. There are objective outcomes in terms of money, but there are certain companies whose uh, goal is not necessarily like yeah, yeah. I meant more financial perfection. Uh, objective isn't a st- numerical quantitative. Uh, yeah. So you can quantify money. That's fair. <laughs> like all waters are murky. You you have to also know when you had a designer on a project that did poorly, and it was also their fault. Yes, right? <laughs> yes. So like, there's, yes. There's quite- and that requires that you investigate. Is all waters are murky a phrase? I've never heard that before, but that is fucking awesome. I have just made that phrase up and, yes. I, and I'm patenting it right whoa, now. Whoa, 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 whoa. No. Copyright design details 2016. <laughs> yeah, no. All waters are murky. Uh, there's no such thing as objective truth. Truth is a is a function of time and place. Um, oh, exhale. Like people want to believe that there's such a thing as like absolute truth, but really like the truth is kind of in the eye of the, of, of the beholder in, in issues of in issues that require subjective judgment. Um, there has never been a project that's ever existed in design that has been 100% positive. Like, there have been some very, very positive outcomes in design, but generally there are a few things about the project that were not positive, like relationships were strained or... Um, three radial gradients on an icon. Three radial gradients on an icon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you know, compromises are made. Um <laughs> wow, low blow. I'm glad I didn't say that. Well, no. you repeated it. No, <laughs> I, I loved it, but uh, some other people on the internet apparently did not. Yeah, exactly. But that's a that's actually a really good that's actually a really good illustration of the concept, Bryn. It is the first time Instagram has been on my home screen hmm. after they changed the icon. After they changed it, really? You moved them to the to the home screen because of the icon? Oh, I hated the old one so much. Wow, really? this one is much less offensive to me. See, you're you're that's interesting. You're a home screen elitist based Definitely. on icon quality. I actually do. Uh, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> most people are most people base it on like app functionality. Utility. I've but. I've opened the app more times in the last couple weeks since they updated it uh, than I ever had before. Wow. Well, Ian Spalter would be very very happy to know that. Um, so hopefully you've sent him a DM and told him how much you love his icon. This next clip comes from episode 158, Dream, with Bob Baxley. And he is working on some awesome things around getting students into uh, design. And he's kind of known as a design manager. He's worked at Pinterest and Apple as a design leader. And uh, this this clip is about IC versus management and how management doesn't necessarily mean you're not putting out 
if you're not producing anymore, it kind of is a multiplying factor in how you produce and what makes for a good manager. And I thought this was a particularly poignant episode, especially after I had just left my first management job and really clarified some things that I had struggled with. So here's uh, episode 158, Bob Baxley on IC versus management. One of the things I've been struggling with, so Brent and I are trying to recreate some stuff for our own website and I just don't know what the best use of my time is. Is it to like keep getting better at coding? Because I realize that the technical rigor it takes to actually execute at a professional level is just so much more work. And would that time be better spent being better at designing or prototyping? Uh, Look, for me, absolutely no doubt you'd be much better off spending your time on design. (laughs) And I say that uh, because I firmly believe that there's not enough designers in the marketplace. Um, and if you have design talents and clearly you do, I think society is probably better served by you, you utilizing you those talents. Work. <laughs> so you're saying I shouldn't spend six hours on a Saturday tinkering with the goddamn request headers on an API call. I, uh, I sorry, it was, a, you, it was a frustrating Saturday. It was a well, great maybe, Saturday. <laughs> maybe that's the only data point you really need. Like, you know, maybe when you was the last stop. Time you were, well, when was the last time you walked away from design problem with that feeling? You know? I mean, the design problems you probably walk when away. When Sketch crashed on his 400 symbols. <laughs> yeah, we need to design together sometime. I'll show you. <laughs> well, that's a tool problem. That's not yeah, that's yeah. something else. Yeah. I know a guy about... that can help you out there. <laughs> uh, I want to know more about what you said earlier, how you, you knew you didn't want to get into management for a while. Yeah, you know, I love the craft. Um, I like making software. I think that they're you know, perhaps a false or inaccurate belief that management takes you away from that. Um, I, uh, and, and so like, like many designers, almost all the designers I know, they're really reluctant to go into management. They feel it's going to pull them away from the craft and that's not necessarily the path they want to go on. Our profession also doesn't really celebrate managers. We tend to celebrate the individuals doing, doing the work. Um, and so sort of professional status and reputations rely, you know, is all about your portfolio. It is kind of portfolio business. Uh, portfolio profession. And Shit, so, I got to build a portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, when you move into management, you're making a decision to do some different activities that just aren't uh, recognized the same way by the people, by your by your professional peers, which is probably a lot of the status you're looking for. Now, what flipped for me um, was that I realized if I wanted to scale as a designer, you know, if I wanted, if my goal is to touch as many lives as possible and to leave the world a slightly better place than I found it, there's no way I can do all the work myself. You know, it's better for me to help enable, you know, dozens or hundreds or potentially thousands of designers who are thoughtful and 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 hardworking and creative, you know, and have them go out and do all the software. So for me, management was about scale, you know, and it, and in my previous management roles, I spent a lot of time being what I referred to as the shit umbrella, right? My goal was to keep all the shit out of the studio so that the designers could do their work. And looking back, I think those designers at that moment were like wildly more productive than they would have been if there wasn't somebody pushing back, you know, kind of protecting them. So I like to think that I, as a designer, I scaled a lot because I had eight, 10, 12, 20 it's, people. It's functioning as a multiplier instead of a single exactly. additive so, component. That's such a more precise way to say it. But how is, <laughs> how is the, the transition for you? I, I think it's a fascinating concept and, and we talk about it quite a bit, like the companies that are offering multiple tracks to, to ICs to switch into management. But like, I want to know more about that transition and giving up the, 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 not giving up the craft, but like 
giving up the time you spend on the craft itself versus enabling other people to do the craft. Yeah, yeah. Well, for me, it was a, a, a pivot. It was just a mindset pivot, as so many things are. You know, and, and the way I describe it now is, you know, I'm still a designer. It's just that I'm designing the machine that designs the designs. Right. I use that phrase all the time. So, you know, what I was <laughs> designing the machine that designs the software that goes on the hardware. That goes <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm trying to design the processes and put assemble the right team and set the right cultural context for design to be able to flourish. Um, and that's still a design problem. You know, we still have to think of with intentionality about the outcomes we want and who's involved and how we're going to measure success. And, you know, and we have to experiment with different things and see how they work out. And, you know, it's still, it's still a design problem. Um, it's just a, a different kind of design problem that unfortunately doesn't necessarily uh, yield a portfolio. But you know, well, why do you think- I actually think that's some of the most interesting conversations going on right now. You know, if you look at Alex Schliefer over at uh, Airbnb, he's, he's freaking killing it on this front. You know, he's just doing some really innovative stuff with how design at Airbnb functions. Facebook has one of the best design cultures that I've seen in Silicon Valley. I know? actually don't know Alex Schliefer. Uh, well, you should. Alex, okay. Alex is an amazing guy. He's, I don't know his exact title, but he's uh, head of design at Airbnb. Um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, Alex is amazing. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> well, he keeps a relatively low profile. Well, yeah, like, which like, we, we see Joe Gebbia, we see Katie Dill, we see the design language systems team and all those people. But Yeah, so he sits in between Katie and, and Joe. Okay. Right? Um, I'm not quite sure who he reports to, but um, I think it might be Brian. But yeah, no, Alex, is, Alex is fantastic. And he keeps you know, potentially purposely, he keeps a low profile because I think he maybe correctly believes maybe his time's better spent focusing on the team and getting them where they need mm-hmm. to be. What? You mean our time's <laughs> not well spent on Twitter and Instagram? <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> but my followers. <laughs> you know, again, I think Facebook's done a phenomenal job. You know, Margaret's done an incredible job over there. Julie, um, you know, Luke, all those guys have done a great job. Um, Google has a really interesting design culture you now across a whole bunch of different groups. You know, Apple had its own design culture that's um, I've been out of for a while, so I don't know exactly what's going on there now. But when I was there, it was an amazing culture. And all of those are really different because they have to, you know, you have to figure out how design as a function plays in the cultural context of that company um, and how that company behaves, what their norms are, what their business is about. So, and so management, if you think about it, if you, if you are open to the idea that management can be about design, it is a fascinating design problem. I... Agree. I think what you said earlier about it being unfortunate that like, I don't know, I guess I'm self-admitting like it's an ego thing, like not being able to point to a thing and say, I made that. Yeah. I don't know. Like there's something really satisfying, kind of what you're saying earlier, like seeing someone hold the thing and say, I made that. Uh, that self-publishing you, or whatever. That you lose as a manager a little bit, perhaps. Yeah. No, look, my experience is that you do. And it's not crazy that I'm back doing IC work right now. You know, I don't think it's... um it's we're gonna it, 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 likely you're gonna live for a really long time, and you're probably gonna have a long career because you like doing this stuff. And so it's not crazy that you would ebb and flow between IC work and management work. And so right now I'm very consciously doing IC work and reorienting reorienting myself to the tools because I like I stopped designing before Sketch came out, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm having to learn all that stuff from scratch, which I can do. Right. And it's going to end up making me a much better manager because I'm going to understand more what my team's doing on a day to day basis where maybe I got a little bit distanced from that. How do you feel about the state of design tools having taken a break? Can I ask something <laughs> quick on that last oh, note? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Awesome. Um, was it an easy fit for you moving into management? Uh, 
Yeah, because it was a really small team. You know, okay. it was a company um, called MyCFO that was a little financial startup from Jim Clark who had founded Netscape. Mm-hmm. And so I got brought in as an IC, and then my manager decided to leave the company. I got promoted into his role. Okay. So I kind of instantly inherited a team of about four. Um, and so there was a lot of guardrails on my experience. Mm. Uh, the company was already established. I think it would be that would be helpful. Really hard to come in and be a design manager first first design management jobs in a company of six people, and you have to build a team right That's from the beginning. Basically, so, where I was, and <laughs> yeah. it made me deeply uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, that would. And I talked to a few people in that situation and try to do some advising here and there. Well, sort of. Well, like, I was like, I think I wanted to be a manager, but now I realize I just want to manage myself. <laughs> And just go do my thing separately yeah, I, from everyone else. Please don't talk <laughs> to me. I am a lone wolf. Do not talk to me. I think I, you know, I also warmed up to management when I became a parent. You know, okay. and I saw a lot of management as sort of, you know, in a, 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 sort of similar to parenting, right? How do okay. you create an environment where somebody can flourish and grow and has a trajectory and feels like they're doing stuff on their own, but still has some guardrails if things go sideways? And now we're back to work, dad. <laughs> Well, again, the trick is to not make it seem like work, Dad. But and, and look, and I, I'm totally aware of that risk because I've made that mistake. I have been the grumpy old guy in the corner, and I know how that plays out, and it's not productive. Um, so I, I spend a lot of time trying to think about how to how to not set myself to, up to be perceived in that role because that's a really that's an easy behavior for me to fall in, and it's an easy way for people to. It's an easy it. way for everyone to fall into, right? Like I feel like in design, a lot of our role comes from being dissatisfied with the current solutions and so we tend to it's really easy to fall into grumpiness even if it's not what we should be doing yeah no i see i see it a lot i think that's part of what drives people out of the profession you know i i talk to designers all the time who feel like every little thing they do is nitpicked and, and i've expressed this to some of my friends and and product management and other things that i don't know if there's another function inside a tech company that is as scrutinized as design, like mm-hmm. everything we produce gets picked apart. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone in the company feels like they have an opinion. Um, that's incidentally not how Apple worked when I was there. It was very siloed as to who had the uh, ability, status, authority to offer creative opinions. And it was, and that's actually my understanding of how Disney works. Like it's okay. pretty siloed as to who gets to weigh in on stuff. And I think that helps protect the creatives and helps protect the process a little. All right. So the next clip is from Jessica, the interview with Jessica Collier, episode 147, editorial spackle. Uh, First of all, I just love that she used the term editorial spackle. I think it paints a picture for the entire conversation in general because she talks a lot about content in design and uses a lot of very vivid words. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We talked a lot about word people. Jessica's good with words generally. She's She's a a word person. She's a word person. This episode was particularly hard to record. Like, we almost didn't record it, right? Like, we were all sitting down in here, and some shit had recently gone down, and there was a shooting in Dallas. Um, and we almost didn't record this episode. We were all just like, I don't, I, don't, I don't know how to do this. Yeah, it was that weird three-week period where there was a shooting every week. It was insane. Like, this is one of those episodes that kind of came through despite everything else that was going on. And it was kind of a question like, should we be doing this? Should we be taking the time to do this when there's much more important things going on? I'm glad we did. This clip I pulled out uh, in it, we talked about how we talk about ourselves, the way people describe themselves, the importance of titles. Uh, Jessica also had some really interesting thoughts about Silicon Valley and its optimism of the future and its glorification of the individual. 
which is such an interesting topic. And, and she, she went deep on it. It was really fun to learn. From. I think we talked about technological saviorism yeah. as well, yeah. which was extremely poignant at the time. All right. So let's get into it. Here's a clip from 147 Editorial Spackle featuring Jessica Collier. This, this happens sometimes where we get into these discussions about titles and it's like, yada, yada, yada. Like, who fucking cares what you oh call Oh my God, yourself? I totally care. Yeah, so talk, talk a little bit about that. Like, I think the words we use to describe yes. ourselves are important. Mm-hmm. They carry meaning. They are a yeah. signifier of what you bring to the table and what you can do and what you w- like to do. Y'all want to get into a weird conversation about titles? Is Always. that what we're doing? Because I'm into it. No, I mean, I, I actually like, would like to propose a meta conversation around the meta conversation proposal seconded (laughs) proposal seconded let's go deeper (laughs) like i think this process of self-definition and i possibly like this is i wrote i wrote a little bit about this in the piece for the manual right that process of self-definition is like one of the great sort of like optimistic pleasures of like of silicon valley in the tech industry and I am not an optimistic person <laughs> at all. Like I'm incredibly like cynical and very very critical and I think You're a designer. This is great. <laughs> anyone I've worked with will tell you that, right? I I think that like criticism should be presented diplomatically, but I think it's like really really important to be direct and honest um and to give like very clear feedback. And f- like for me, one of the things that keeps me here in spite of all my cynicism is the idea that like what if we take our sort of because this this like penchant for self-definition and this penchant for like optimism and this penchant to believe that like we can change the world by imagining it differently all of this goes like directly back to the transcendentalists like i hate to break it to everyone but we are like not like this is not the first iteration of these ideas right what you mean we're <laughs> We're not all geniuses inventing the future. Right. But that's, that is profoundly, that to me is a profoundly optimistic thing. So like, I don't believe in technological solutionism. All right, Puritan. Like technological (laughs) solutionism, I think is like pretty much bullshit, right? We can't like, you can't like to quote, you know, the, the book title, like you can't save everything by asking people to click here. Well, this is like, uh, We've had this whole Black Lives Matter conversation lately, yeah. and people tried building an app for it totally. without any context. Totally. Hashtags. Hashtags aren't going to solve our problems. Hashtags are not going to solve our problems. Do you think However, that, yeah, is there a, a caveat? What if we, that? like, take seriously this, like, intellectual prehistory that is the sort of origin point for all of our ideas around, like, how to improve society? Right. And that's this is kind of like I harp on transcendentalism a lot. And some of Can we set the context for transcendentalism for those who don't know. <coughs> yeah. <coughs> <laughs> so transcendentalism was a 19th century, a, a mid 19th century, primarily um, antebellum, which means before the Civil War. Uh, literary. That's what that means. Fuck. <laughs> Brain's learning well, so OK, much so right this now. is like another perfect example of like American sort of myopia like us just sort of like looking in on ourselves and not realizing that I'm far sighted like, it doesn't matter it's fine <laughs> antebellum really just means like before the war in latin but we've sort of co-opted it and when we use it, it like historically we're referring to like the period before the I war, just, war I just assume it has something to do with Hours. country music <laughs> exactly 
We call it the Civil War instead of like the American Civil War. The Civil War. Right. There's a lot of civil wars. But we're totally happy to call it the Spanish Civil War. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, America. Amer- America. Um, so it was a literary and cultural movement that was uh, con- focused primarily in New England. And it was sort of built around the idea of the individual, right? It believed that the— Classic New England bullshit. <laughs> says the guy who works in Silicon Valley, <laughs> where individualism <laughs> is king. Um, so I mean, clearly. <laughs> so we believe that, or we, the transcendentalists. The royal we. The I. royal we, yeah. <laughs> the transcendentalists believe that this, the contemplative individual could sort of tap into a source of intuition that was this kind of universal spirit that flowed through everything and connected all of humanity that was like a better, a sort of greater source of knowledge than experience in the world itself. Startup instituted meditation. Yes. Got it. Exactly. But so this is where we get some of the ideas that like we can act as our own sort of like social and moral authorities, right? Because when we, when we sort of turn inward, we're not turning inward away from the world. We're turning inward towards a universal spirit and we're tapping into like all of humanity right so turning inward is actually like a virtue rather than a flaw and so this this gives people the like it gave people the onus to sort of act on their own moral and social authority so like transcendentalism has this like anti-authoritarian reputation because it kind of believed that like individuals were the greatest source of like truth and virtue isn't that like the definition of selfish I think it's the definition of self-centered, but like transcendentalism believed in the power and the virtue of the self. And you're saying that that has continued on from that point and that we're living in whatever the evolution of transcendentalism. I think Silicon Valley is like the most concrete manifestation of 19th century transcendentalism that we've ever seen. And I think it's like the transcendentalists were predictably not great at like new ventures, like all of the sort of, yeah, all of the, like they would found these communes. Like there was one called Fruitlands that um, everyone was required to be, to be vegan and which is not like really that ridiculous, but um, it was, it was sort of run as a farm, but all of these people who came together, like had so many sort of more, important intellectual endeavors to chase than to actually like operate the farm. Uh-huh. And so the sort of communal living experience experiment like failed pretty they all miserably, to death. more or less. So they weren't great at like founding new ventures. But I think that what Silicon Valley has done is to take like if you were to boil transcendentalism down into like five words, which are like it's like like any generalization you're introducing like untruth, but I still think it's an interesting experiment. It would be like think big, think for yourself. Right. If Silicon Valley is not built on those ideals, then I don't know what it's built on. Personal cynicism, skepticism. No, it's built on profound no? optimism. Interesting. Like, like I have the power to change. See, I, I have the I power see to like change the world. Question everything. Yes, but that's part of thinking big, right? It's like it's just because you're turning inward and sort of like attempting to tap into the source of intuition does not make you uncritical. I think this is like hmm. a really crucial. Okay. Point. And right, this is why I think that like we should maybe think about taking more seriously our intellectual prehistory because I think our intellectual prehistory was much 
better at acknowledging the necessity for sort of like deep, vibrant criticism than we are. Like our manifestation of it sort of continues to like water that down into like a kind of optimism that can be dangerous. Coming up is a clip from Melanie Arujo. She was episode 149, Mel Yance, back in July. This is the week after Jessica's. This was such a fun episode. Uh, this one resonated with so many people that listened. Melanie was just so open and honest and personal and We didn't talk about real. traditional design projects. We talked about designing herself. Yeah, yeah. It was a great episode. If you missed it, definitely go check that out. That was episode 149. This particular clip I, I pulled from the end. I loved it. We talked about her role models uh, in generally the world, but also about black women in design and how she looked at at people that served as examples for other people like her, black women in tech here in San Francisco, becoming designers. Uh, It was inspiring and personal and honest and uh, really was awesome for Melanie to share that with us. So here's the clip from episode 149 with Melanie Arujo. Who are some of your other role models right now? Um, Some of my other role models right now, um, I have a few people that I like, but my my role models right now, it means something different to me right now. It means um, more of who do I want to be when I'm not designing? Mm -hmm. Like, so I have... I think that's important, by the way. Yeah, I have a few women that um, totally like rock my core there. And I'm like, dang. Who are they? Yeah, can you share names? You're, uh, you're building up so strongly. We can, yeah. just so we can link to them and share it with okay, people. Okay, so um, I didn't think I was, I, I don't even think I've told them this. So maybe that's probably why I'm a little nice. hesitant. So this is going to be your first time hearing this, and um, I hope it's okay. But um, Phaedra Ellis, who is head of care at Honor, um, she's new in, in tech. Um, prior to that, she was at Green for All, which is a nonprofit in Oakland, um, you know, around green energy. Um, she's just a real badass. She's real awesome. And I, I remember the first time I saw her and spoke to her and I was like, oh, dang, this girl speaks my language here in San Francisco. And you're like, you're, you, you're like on top of your shit. And I was like stunned, stunned, stunned. And I was just like, she's, she's awesome. And it wasn't until last weekend that, uh, so she's Ren's coworker. It wasn't until last weekend that we were invited over to her home that kind of was just like, want to be like you when I grow up. Like flat out, just want to be like you when I grow up as a person. Um, I know her, that feeling very well. I want to yeah, be like you when I grow up. Yeah, yeah. And um, she had all of these young impressionable black little girls around her and her family, uh, blossoming women. And um, Phaedra, when you meet her, she's authentically herself. And um, it's and that's so inspiring. So there's all these little girls around her. And Phaedra has achieved so many amazing and wonderful things. And I remember being 14 and having one person in my family who was that. And that was my cousin who is the reason why I went to college um, in the first place or, you know, and um, well, considered it at least. Um, so Phaedra, I think what she does, she's who she is and how she moves in the world is alone. So inspiring to these young women. Like she loves herself and she's good at what she does. And she is herself day in and day out. And she doesn't give a damn 
about how that makes anyone feels because she knows that it feels good to her to be that herself. And she teaches these, uh, she, she passes this wisdom and ideas down to these young girls. And for me, I learned to speak up and advocate for myself very quickly and early on because my aunts and my mother always advocated for their needs. And I haven't had that in my adult life. And so that she's one example there. Um, I want to come back to that, by the way. Yeah. And the other person is Felicia Horowitz, which is Ben Horowitz's wife um, uh, and Brent's from A16Z. But um, I've met her once, but it was while reading Ben's book, The Hard, Thing, the Hard Things About Hard Things, that I really kind of got a better sense of who Felicia was and what it meant to be a supportive partner, um, what it meant to be strong, uh, to make sacrifices so that the unit, right, can do well. Um, and that's hard, you know, like, uh, it's very easy to assume that it's easy to make it here, you know, from what the, at least for my point of view and from what the media says like oh look this guy just made facebook in his dorm boom everyone can do that and i'm just kind of like no that's not true and i know that's not true for white males either mm-hmm. and so the way in which she supported her husband through while he was at his company um before i think he before ben was a vc is so fucking dope well ben did uh mozilla right uh, no um Andreessen. mosaic I, the browser that was mark Andreessen. Oh. Yeah, there was another like uh, data company that he was a part of. Um, I don't know where it was early on, like kind of in in his chapter. But um, yeah, like Ben's book pretty much um, opened up my eyes, and uh, then I became super. You know, once he got in my radar, I just kind of consumed everything he was yeah. posting and she was sharing, and it was so cool because I was like, "Dang, this woman!" And then like Ben actually shares a story in his book. If he can share, I can say here. Well, he's like, he was set up on a blind date with her and she totally iced him. Like she was like, didn't show, like, I think she, she was trying to cancel it. And in the book, um, he was like, yeah, she was canceling. And then after she was like, oh, I got to take a nap or something before the date. And then eventually she was like, okay, fine, whatever. I'll, I'll, I'll show up. And she showed up and then she was like, just, I'm myself. I don't care like who you is. Right. And I think that was so cool because I'm like, Damn, if she was like that in the beginning of the relationship, I wonder what she's like right now. <laughs> even um, more even real. though after you you've you've made it. Like is she still herself? And from what I saw, um, from you know, just watching her and this type of stuff that she shares online, I think she is that I think she's very much is that person, that strong black woman. And so that's important for me to have that. Um, but uh perhaps the third I don't know, I'm still trying to figure out what a a, a design role model to mean to me looks like. So I, I, can, I can name a couple of people that I admire their work visually and also the quality of the solutions that's, that, that they put out in the world. Um, and then I can also look at it from a leadership point of view. Right. Um, yeah. And then as, yeah, and that and even that means different things. Yeah, and it, not one person has to be all of those things. Exactly, exactly. I, we're running out of time, by Sorry, the way. Guys. I want to just make over. sure. We, yeah, we're over. Um, What's been fascinating listening to you is like this intense focus on authenticity and being yourself. Like mm-hmm. you're focusing on this now and you 
seems like you look up to these people uh, because they have been able to do that. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what your experience has been like at, at the companies you've worked at and living in San Francisco for what? Seven years, yeah. Seven years now. Like, is that possible for you? Is it yourself holding it back? Like, what's been your experience being your true self here in tech as a woman, as a black woman in tech designing things? Like, It's actually been pretty awesome. I... I, I thought that I was gonna. I thought that I was gonna be reprimanded for being myself, and that was actually wrong. Um, but I, I felt that way because of what I saw online and lack of representation. I'm like, okay, so this has to be the case because this is what it was. So I made a lot of assumptions that I couldn't be myself. And the few times that I was myself, which were very, very few, I got burnt. Um, so like, like the few times that I stood up for myself and advocated at the workplace, it was always like reconfirming. I felt like I was confirming some so, uh, these un these unconscious negative bios about black women, like, quote unquote, I was angry, um, like that I had an attitude or, um, you know, I was a Debbie Downer and, a, you know, loud. Um, everything that everything that I was I, I knew I wasn't and I knew that that was not representative. And even if I was upset or frustrated with some things. I felt like that was being, I was being withheld from having that. Um, and, and like I said, those experiences for me weren't, you know, the, the, they were far and few, but when they did happen, they had, the impact was enough to make it felt, to feel to me at least like it was happening every day. Um, but since I started my uh, initiative front and center to, raise awareness and exposure around uh, careers in tech that um, non-technical roles, that's been, it's been an amazing ride. Um, it's been so cool. And I love it because um, I think what might be obvious to us in the room right now, like design, that's not obvious to some other communities in the, in the country. Um, that's definitely true. Yeah. So that has been incredibly awesome. Um, and I feel very warm and welcome here. Um, but to, but I also feel that um, the design community could do two things, and this is my ask, which is have a little bit more transparency about the internal moral, moral dilemmas that you struggle with because then we create a space where both parties can participate in a learning well, both parties, there's actually a Jewish term for this that I, I read at the Jewish Museum. When you participate in this, this two type of two people bringing different point of views and different perspective into the room and what they leave it with is something much better than they could have ever come up with themselves. And so I think transparency more on the business side and what it, it needs to have a successful design team. Um, and also the person can share with you, okay, I'm ready and willing to learn this. I get that your business has these metrics, but can you at least give me some actionable feedback that I can take home and study for like the next six to however long it takes me to master that so I can apply here and have a better shot rather than these kind of like, sorry, answers and that's it. Okay, so to, to clarify, you're saying an ask is that when companies are dealing with prospective designers- That come from diverse backgrounds. That come from diverse backgrounds. To not give them this bullshit- like soft cuddled answer soft cuddled answer like you want transparent actionable feedback of how right, you can be better right because that 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 soft 
kind of answer might work for some community, but for people who have been socialized their entire lives to deal with hard feedback, I think we kind of expect that honest, blunt truth. And we know that we can do something with that because the world has, and life has always been that way to, for us. So that's during the hiring process. But um, when the person's actually in the company, spend some time getting to know that person. And when I'm in, in specifically, I want to see um, team members have that same love and concern for their users reciprocated with diverse people in the environment. I mean, like we spend so much time trying to figure out what it is, our use, what our users needs and motivations and goals are, but we don't spend enough time looking internally within our own organizations to identify the needs you know, hopes, fears of um, diverse candidates, oh, diverse a, employees. Yeah. We spend a lot of time thinking about how it can be easier to get people to click on a thing, mm-hmm. but maybe not how to make our team like inclusive. Right. This next episode actually includes Sarah uh, and our good friend Marshall Bach. And he's been on the show a bunch, but this episode, uh, we talked about something that we kind of all work on together, which is side products and trying to figure out how to prioritize them and what things actually help us ship things. Uh, something that's been particularly poignant lately and kind of always, uh, it's just how do we get something shipped and wh- how do we prioritize what to ship in the first place when it's literally just us making the decisions. Um, it, it's a really hard problem. And I thought this was a very helpful clip. Um, yeah, this was a fun episode where it was kind of just us hanging out as friends talking. It wasn't really an interview so much. But we talked about how we had failed previously. We talked about what helped us be successful previously. It was, it was a really interesting like episode of introspection. Yep. Yeah, I don't remember much about this episode because I think I blacked <laughs> out for a lot of it. I blacked out, said some words, out, and it was published. I said some stuff, and now That's how I feel every time you record <laughs> one of these, Sarah. So here's Sarah Jackson and Marshall Bach, episode 171, Never Not Crunched. That, that's you know, made it easier on me. It this takes is, courage is, to do that too, right? You have to be able to say, okay, well, this is going to change and we're going to I change know it's it. Missing but we, ports, need, but courage. we need somewhere to start. <laughs> we need somewhere to start to like go <laughs> there next. Like you can't make all of the decisions. Mm-hmm. You have to let, you have to let your content make some of the decisions for but you. It, yeah. Well, I think you're getting at a point, or, sorry, I'm going to cut you off, but I think you're getting at a point earlier. It reminds me of a study I read once where, um, they had taken uh, a class and uh, they had assigned a project or, or I forget exactly what the setup was, but basically the takeaway was half of the students were asked to tell what their project was going to be beforehand and half were uh, asked to keep it secret. And uh, at the end of whatever their deadline was, the group that kept their project secret was much more likely to actually finish it than the group that had announced what mm. they were going to do because that's um, not what I expected. It, right. But, but the reason reasoning that they, they found was that the people who said what they wanted to do got all of the adulation of people being like, Oh, that's a really good idea. Yeah. And so they got the dopamine hit yeah. of like, Oh, I, you know, I don't actually have to do it now because I've already felt the goodness <laughs> that, that and the people who had hidden it are like, are like making yeah. it really good and like, oh people are going to love this when it's done and and so the yeah. the gratification was delayed so they Our were more like episode was called brag driven development right <laughs> but you know that same science applies to dieting and working out people mm-hmm. that announce i'm going to right lose 10 pounds mm-hmm. 
have a higher fail rate because mm-hmm. they feel so good about imagining themselves working out that they mm-hmm. don't actually work out. Yep. Uh, I, other, I totally think it's true. I think the other thing I struggle with, and I'd love your perspective on how you think about this is when I'm doing work at Facebook, I understand this iterative mindset. Like I understand how to put <laughs> stuff out in the world and, mm-hmm. and shape it over time. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, I really have a hard time with that with side projects. I will, butts around with it that's and never publish it i think that's like, where well, i was well, coming from with the figma thing is like i understand it there yeah, yeah. because it's so it's not me necessarily even though a lot of it is but how do how do we bring that back to side projects do you like, think how do how do i do you think that's an that ego thing do you think that's yeah. do you think that's yeah. external pressures from other team members and things like that it's probably an ego thing maybe you don't think it's external pressures do you think it's, you like think a, it's a manager assignment thing I mean, it's all sorts of things. I I think the frustrating thing for me is I I understand conceptually what I should do, but I'm too uh, nervous about it. And like, I I feel lucky that I've overcome that with design details and spec and and some of the Mm -hmm. the things I've put on my website and stuff like that. But every fucking time, it's really hard. Well, I I mean, I think part of it is just start. And that's the thing that we've kind of been... How many uh, side projects have we started together, though? (laughs) A lot. And that doesn't count the ones I've done on my own. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But yeah, I mean, you kind of just have to start. Um, But I think there's something beautiful in that trial, though, right? Because it doesn't say, like, if you start something, you're going to finish it. And you have to be okay with that, too. There's also not being stubborn, Yeah, sometimes you just had a bad idea. And I'm glad you explored it. And I'm glad you tried it. But... Yeah. You just got to pull a plug on stuff that doesn't work and don't let that discourage you. Mm-hmm. Go on to the next thing, learn from it, take notes from it and say, okay, well that sucked, but did we learn anything cool from this experience and can we take it to something new? Sometimes yeah. that takes years, sometimes that takes months, sometimes that only takes a couple of weeks, but I think I think it's okay. I think it's it's okay. It's okay to say I'm giving up on this. Iteration but can, don't stop. But don't stop there. Don't well, don't the, think. What's the don't last focus thing, on the failure of it. What's the last thing you give up on? Me? Yeah. Me. It can be an- <laughs> Brandon. <laughs> They're married. Uh, by yeah. the way. I gave up on Brandon a long time. <laughs> no, so what, what's the last thing you give up on? It doesn't have to be spec or side project related. Um. Take your time. I know. I that's that's an interest. It's a hard question because. My life has been consumed by spec. I don't really get much time to focus on like the little things that I want to do. Uh, I'm not proud of it, but like diets I give up on all the time. Mm, and I'm preach. always and I'm always just like, well, that sucked. We'll try it again in a week, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe this time I'll have more discipline. I don't get down about it, but I always try to learn a little bit more about like, well, how what what was what made you give up this time? What was it? You went to a party and that party had a lot of pizza and you really wanted the pizza. <laughs> but you work out like three times more than anyone I know. Yeah, but I mean, as I get older, that's not helpful, right? And the reason I work out and like try to watch my, like what I'm consuming is because of like medical issues that go way back. I like don't want to lose yeah. my kidneys and I don't want to become diabetic. Genes, huh? Yeah. Genes are great. <laughs> Hmm. Marshall uh, uh but yeah I don't know I I guess like yeah I'm going to circle back to it like you give up on something but and you can get mad about it for a little while but don't let it ruin it for you don't let it don't let it stop you from looking for other opportunities to do something cool This next clip 
comes from an interview with Ben Wilkins of Airbnb. Uh, in this clip, particularly, we talk about the role of prototyping and coding and learning new skills. But I think my favorite part of this episode is definitely the outtake of this episode. Oh, your trousers, <laughs> Brian. <laughs> Best outtake of the year award goes to this episode. Of the year award goes to this episode in which Brian asks. Go listen to the episode. End of episode after the outro. One hundred and sixty-three. So good. It has nothing to do with this clip. I just love that. That's an outtake that we got. Oh, so perfect. It's beautiful. And it was just generally a fun episode. Ben's awesome. He was injured and he still came anyway. Oh man, this was super fun to record. This is a clip, episode 163, Guardrails, featuring Ben Wilkins. So, DLS, what do you want to know about how I interact with it? What? Yeah. How do you think about it? And, like, I often wonder how far can it go? Like, Yeah. You know, so, we talked a little bit about this, I think. Um, but there, there's, like, this twofold evolution to DLS, right? Which is, like, this kind of, like... As we enable new product capability, we're going to need new components to to be included in the system and kind of keeping a canon, canonical uh, set of components versus an experimental set and everything like that. But there's also going to be this step change, like art directed as design trends kind of evolve or hopefully we don't end up with a dated system. Um, if you look at some design systems, uh, Bootstrap being one of them, like they don't just have bootstrap one still like they flattened it out and like ah yes ah yes the the importance of less gradients the way i think about dls is we have a lot of tools for kind of tweaking type and tweaking shapes and doing vectors and all of that but as you get into prototyping there we're we're just kind of like living in this kind of exploratory phase of prototyping. We haven't figured out like what the right way to prototype is. Is it prototyping code with HTML or with uh, Swift? Or do you prototype in um, Principle or Flinto? Everyone does it differently, Framer. Um, And then like the jump from there to code. I think with DLS, we're hoping to to shorten those cycles. And uh, theoretically, because it is this component library, you should be able to do drag-and-drop prototyping in code and uh, kind of have hybrid, like the best of both worlds of those of those tools. Like designers get to work in the language that they like, and the output of that is code that... Uh, is usable. Yeah, our UI engineers don't uh, look at and be like, well, that's garbage, Let's throw it all away and start over, because they wrote the component code originally. Is there a barrier to getting the designers you work with to, like, prototype in code with the component library you've built? Yeah, there's absolutely barriers to that. Uh, Everyone has varying levels of comfort um, with writing code or uh, everyone has varying levels of comfort with all sorts of different things. Uh, Even within design, I know, Brian, you're a coding designer. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I can't do icons. That's not not like reflective of of everything, right? or, or, Or of everyone. Um, some people see HTML markup and they're like, "What the fuck is this magic?" Okay, probably not that many people. <laughs> but like, but then like, there's this cognitive barrier to jumping into JavaScript because all of a sudden you're dealing with Boolean logic and like loops, and you're like, it feels like high school math all over again. 
JavaScript is like the hardest easy thing I know of. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like broken to begin with and it's getting better, but like to use like the new hotness in JavaScript, you have to like. It took uh, me forever. <laughs> it took me a long time to figure out ES6 at all. Yeah. Oh my God. Like there's all this peripheral knowledge that you even need to do to like start yeah. writing JavaScript. Like when I, when I, when I learned JavaScript, like you like included a JavaScript file or like a script tag in HTML and you wrote like alert jQuery. Yeah. Or like, or like alert or console log statements or like these things that are like would literally pop up like a native piece of UI in one line. And now it's like, oh, you don't know about transpilation? Like, all right. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) You don't have to. I mean, you do if you want to write code now, apparently. Uh, Isn't that what Babel does? Yeah, exactly. You do know what that means. Polyfill. Polyfills. I don't even know what that means, but I know what it does. Yeah, no, like there's all this, because like the the web has to be infinitely backwards compatible. There's all this peripheral knowledge you need to do to even like start writing with one of the frameworks that is, yeah, I don't know. One of the, someone just tried to explain reducers to me and that sounds not fun. Like Redux? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that when they fixed my leg, they reduced the fracture. <laughs> <laughs> am, I, am I on the right track here? Is it, is it, is it what's <laughs> fixing what's broken about React? Is no, that- it is absolutely not. Uh yeah, I I think that nope everything's still broken about React. <laughs> I like no, React. I love React. Actually, React is kind of I think bringing designers and developers closer together. Oh, the, I was gonna say like the Create React app yes. project that uh, Dan Abramov and some other people worked on is. I mean it's it's a boilerplate, but it's a boilerplate in a way that like removes having to learn about Babel and Webpack and all this shit, and they like intentionally hide it. So you can't find it unless you know what you're doing. Yeah, and that came out, what, like three weeks ago? Yeah, and they're already doing so much stuff. Like I, I've been using it for prototyping all sorts of kind of j- things. You just create a little app and then manipulate a couple files and you're good. Just hearing about Webpack makes me uncomfortable, though. Because yeah. like, everyone always talks about it in terms of it breaking. And it makes I think it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. So hiding it is a very interesting design decision for them to, to make, hopefully, yes. this sort of tool more approachable. Do we really need like another build tool, though? Yeah. In this case, I'd say yes. Really? Um, like everyone was writing boilerplates. Like I wrote my own boilerplate because I oh, I hated all the other boilerplates, and now I don't have to. Like thankfully, that boilerplate Wait, can go and die. What? Like just like the baseline. We're we're talking about the need, like all of this cognitive mm-hmm. overhead to even get started on modern JavaScript, and it sucks. Like you you shouldn't have to. Like having another build tool to at least like get you up and running with like a production level. ES6 app or whatever. Hmm. Is. The new hotness. Oh, the well, new can, hotness. can we talk a little bit about that? Because I think the the scary thing for a lot of people and certainly for me is knowing how much uh, like institutional knowledge you have to have in order to start being competent is really scary. Like anybody can pick up some jQuery and be like, oh yeah, I'm coding. But to actually code takes so much more. You have to understand like what's happening with ES6 and how do you make that compatible on all the versions of browsers, blah, 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 blah. Yes. And um, that's just one example of all the, like the, this fringe knowledge that you have to build up over time. And that takes years for a lot of people. Yeah. And it, it's kind of this forever interplay between, do you go and learn the fundamentals of like knowing what's going on under the hood or do you just trust the, 
that that's going to be okay and focus on making your thing work in your browser using the syntax that you're currently learning and like all the tutorials are currently written in. I don't know. Like I, I, I feel like the hurdle to get into web development, like you have all these coding boot camps and everything like that. And when coding boot camps first came out like five years ago or whatever, there were 10 week programs and or, or something. And now they're like 15 week programs because you actually cannot get to a professional le- level of understanding even full time in 10 weeks. There's so much going on there. Uh, and it, I mean, even I, I like luckily have this this thing where I get bored and I like look up how to do something new. Um, so I have this like forever learning. I'll like see a medium post on React and I'll be like, oh, I'll just read that for fun. But it's a lifetime investment. Like learning to code isn't like, oh yeah, no, I'm going to learn to code this weekend. I'm done. I know how to code now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, oh shit, there's a new a new framework out. Like React, I don't know what the longevity of React is. It's awesome right now, but in two years, are we still going to be writing React? Is Or if we are, is it going to even resemble what it is right now? Probably not. That's um, scary. It is. Just got to learn Swift. I don't know. At a certain point, like... That's like why web dev is scary and... I haven't written well. It's kind of like scary Swift and awesome, or Java right? or anything, but like those things have prior art that's been around for a long time, like Objective C uh, to they, Swift. They all have like a five-year lifespan. Sure. Like Objective Java. I, Java is still around, and that is a testament. I don't know. Actually, I don't. I, I don't really <laughs> write Java, uh, but what it came out in the mid '90s or something like that. So twenty years later, uh, that's a pretty good, C, pretty good run. But C plus plus C sharp. Yeah, so game development, I think, kind of because it needs that low level. Uh, yeah, you still write C, and Objective C kind of breathe new life into C, and I don't, I don't know. Like we're getting kind of below my level of knowledge. Here. Well, like a lot of the people working in VR are using C sharp, which is really interesting. Like all my design friends seem yeah. to be learning C sharp. Yeah, C sharp. Like the Microsoft stack. You, in order to use Unity, yeah, you do. It's you use C sharp, sharp to like write the things and then JavaScript to script the things. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, but for you, like, what, how far do you go? Because you're a designer who can right. write JavaScript and code and like work on web apps to build systems like this. But how far do you go? Like, what's what's the threshold of where you're like, okay, I'm wasting my time to learn this new thing about programming, or is that like the direction you want to go? Yeah. So I think for me. Um, because it's all in service to, to design, like I just kind of, I try and limit myself to the UI layer. And sometimes in order to make UIs work, you also need to have a backend that will feed up data. So if I feel like I'm optimizing a computer science problem or something like that, I'm like, I can ask a friend or, or something else. Um, but like the thing that keeps me uh, interested is making things work, like making things that I can see and touch and like, interact with and if it ever feels like i'm just manipulating data then that's i've gone too far and i i I still like have that mentality of like i'll start in sketch like some people are like oh yeah i just designed an html i'm like that's not me like I, i still think in terms of the the vectors and everything like that and then i think how can i make this work and it's been interesting to like hear john gold's thinking about like abstracting all of that where you I guess declarative design is is kind of what he's coining, right? And like you give data to a system and the system 
you declare what you want and the system creates it, right? Yeah, I mean, that man is years ahead of his time, I feel like. Uh, I, I love having a coworker that it, like pushes me to like expand my my boundaries of thought. Um, I, I, I think he's on to something. Like the idea where these designs are just kind of permutations of properties and your UI is a function of the underlying information. And if we know the information that is going to be fed into a system, we can derive how it should be presented. Well, that's content first design anyway, right? Like that's what we've been talking about for a long time. It's just like the next level of it. Right. And that's what we do as people, right? Like we think, okay, you need an e-commerce site. And so that gives us like an idea of what the pages are going to be or the UI components Mm -hmm. are going to be. Or you need a blog, and so you're going to need some way to like input information, and you're going to need a rendering of that information, and you're going to need images and embedded video, and blah 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 blah. Like we do that as designers, we we arrange these complex data structures into kind of solutions that allow us to interact with them. Uh, we don't think about it that way, but that is that is our function. Like um, we take a bunch of requirements and then come up with a solution. We're way better at working with incomplete information or working until we hit a barrier of that information than computers are. Computers are like, oh, I don't have this information, so I, I can't like solve this problem. Mm-hmm. And because designers work on human timelines and humans work on human timelines, uh, we're much better at interacting with people who are like, I have this idea. It's not fully fleshed out. Let's kind of work through the problem together. And Interpretation. Yeah. And inference, like that's something computers are particularly bad at, but humans definitely like are cool with. And like we do pattern recognition too. Like we, even though a a client or an employer or whatever might not say that you need error states for your UI, like from experience, we are able to be like, oh yeah, and we'll handle this and we'll handle this and we'll handle this. And it's kind of built into our mental model uh, when we're designing products that that's something that we're going to come up with and we apply those patterns over and over. That was episode 180. Thank you for listening to all three of our excellent best of episodes. Well, I guess we don't know they if they be listen the best to of the all best of the best, right? No, they'd listen to all of them, and you don't listen to one. If you're listening part to part three, are you kidding part me? Three without listening. These to part savages <laughs> would listen to the third one, but not the first two. Just unplug I your mean, headphones. It's not like they're not bottle episodes anyway. Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. They're only good in all set. In, in, in a, order? In like, a set. Like in an Star order? Wars, you need to listen to them in order to appreciate Yeah, you them. can't just watch episode six and call it a day. Yeah, crazy. You crazy? Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the clips. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, if you missed any of these, of course, these are all on our website at spec.fm, where we have a bunch of podcasts to help designers and developers level up. Before we go, of course, be sure to check out Wayno.co. That's our U-E-N-O best friends ever, Wayno.co. .co. They're a full-service digital agency building products for people here in San Francisco, New York, Reykjavik. They but want you only to, in those three cities. That's the only place they build people. Nowhere build else. For people. So come join them. They're looking for a design intern here in San Francisco in 2017. They're also hiring product designers in New York and San Francisco. Go to their website, Wayno.co. Scroll to the bottom check out their jobs and of course tell them we sent you thank you once again Wayno, so much for sponsoring so many episodes and making our product design details possible seriously we couldn't have made it to episode 180 without them thank you Wayno, and thank you everybody for listening 
We'll see we'll you next week. See you next week. We'll see you next, next week. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Next year. See you next we'll week. We'll see you next week. In 2017. It's already We're, 2017. It's already 2017 at this point. I know it's Christmas Eve today, but it's already 2017. We'll see we'll you next see you week. Next year. We'll see you next week. See you next week. <laughs> we'll see you next week. <laughs> I'm just trying to brainstorm a bit. Oh, shit. Common typo. Explosion noises.